from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to this special series of the Centre for European Reform podcast from our annual Ditchley Conference. My name is Sam Lowe. I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the CER. As we do every year, we've invited 49 of the world's top economists to gather in this wonderful stately home in the Oxfordshire countryside to discuss some of the biggest issues facing European policymakers. And we've just ended a session where we've been discussing the Eurozone. And it, and it got, it was a very interesting discussion, it got a bit heated, there are differences in opinions. And, uh, and here to just discuss this uh, with me, I have uh, Angel Huvide, who's, who's an economist at a hedge fund. Um, I, think he's, I think he's quite well known. If you're listening to this, you probably know who he is. And also Professor Jean Pisani-Ferry, who probably doesn't need any further introduction either. So let's, let's just get straight into this. So the Eurozone has passed the peak of its economic cycle. Growth is down. Inflation expectations are heading downwards. And risks to the European economy from Brexit and Trump's trade wars are mounting. Has monetary policy run out of road or is there more Lagarde can do? Well, the, the, the situation is that you know we, we're down to a one percent growth in the eurozone, more or less. Uh, we had much better performance before. That was driven by China. That was driven by global trade. So we've suffered from this uh, external shock. We're not in a recession, but the risk of a recession um, is now stronger. And the question is, you know, what uh, will be the the response in case the risk of a recession materializes? And the Eurozone has relied enormously on the ECB for the last 10 years. I mean, we've been rescued by the ECB, essentially. And this time, the question is, can the ECB uh, also respond? So there's a lot of pressure by the ECB itself, by Draghi, by Lagarde, to say it's the turn of fiscal policy. They've, They've said that very explicitly. Now, if you say fiscal policy, that means the fiscal policies of the member states. And here we see a very little appetite for that, because each and every country uh, considers the fiscal policy its its own responsibility. They may have constraints, and they are still playing within the rules of the of the EU. So the fiscal space, the institutional fiscal space, is almost inexistent. Now you can create fiscal space, but that puts you in a different discussion. Angel, you have you have you have some opinions about fiscal space. <laughs> well, I think taking on what uh, Jan was saying, right? I think what the ECB can do, and I want to say, has done a very good job in supporting growth and inflation and everything else, right? But now, I think the role of monetary policy has to be to create fiscal space for governments to act and support demand, but also to create the intellectual consensus to convince the governments that is the time for fiscal policy to be more active. And I think it's true that they've been in a good place for them in the last 15 years, where they have been able to essentially focus on reducing debt and deficits and let monetary policy do its job. Now that monetary policy has basically done almost as much as it could do in an active way, I think it's time for monetary policy to become perhaps a bit more passive and then fiscal policy has to be more active. 
But we need to convince governments that that's the right thing to do. It's not something they should be doing against their will. It's something they are doing because it's good for them and good for their economies. Because that's always my question. We always hear, well, at least over the last few years, we hear fiscal policy needs to play a bigger role, but governments don't want it to. That's my, I have to say, that's the puzzle I have. I mean, it's good for their economies if they do it right. The question is the quality of fiscal policies, right? I mean, there is always for each government in the euro area a way to design a budget that is going to boost potential growth and at the same time is going to support domestic demand in the near term. That's always possible. So it's a question for them to get it to do the homework. We've had two discussions in the panel. One was about whether the ECB could actually turn fiscal, the various ways in which it could be done. I mean, the simplest one is what we call helicopter money. So basically the ECB sending checks to households. Uh, so the ECB substituting the lack of uh, uh, action by the government. The other one was to uh, use climate change, uh, or to you know, not use, but I mean to to see that this coincidence of the the issue of climate change and the uh, the macro issue for the eurozone, uh, find a way to turn it into something that's positive in the short run. And um, there were there were various views on on, on the two on the on, on the fiscal uh, behavior of the central bank. Uh, the question was in, in particular whether it's uh, legally feasible. Uh, on the um, on the, the, the green uh, deal, the question was more political. With some people saying, if we do that, we're going to you know take an issue that's fairly consensual into the territory of controversy about the eurozone. Yes. Okay. Great. So, so to move on to a slightly uh, different topic, but obviously all very related, uh, how important is a completed banking union or capital capital markets union for the eurozone, um, especially in the in the light of the current downturn? And are you feeling optimistic? <laughs> well, I think it's important, but I want to define what we mean by banking union. Right. To me, banking union is to get to a point where you have cross border banks in Europe that allow for the free flow of savings, right? And I think the problem we have today is that what we have is European supervision, but you don't have European banks. And so what you have is a segmented European financial system where savings are not flowing to the right places, and there are places that are start from investment. So in that sense, I think it's very important. Now, what I don't think is that healthy is that we focus on some of the specific issues of the institutional architecture of banking union, and they become the stumbling block to get other things done. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, um, because the, all the discussion has been on, on, on technicalities. The big question if, is, do uh, member governments agree that we need an integrated banking industry? That, so that means there's no French banks anymore or, or, or German banks. I mean, banks aggregate risk. And the, the last thing you want is that they aggregate risk at national level. Because that's that's really the, the core of the doom loop that we, we we've seen. So you want to, to to banks to diversify risk across the monetary union. Uh, so this is an industrial issue in the end. It's an industrial policy issue. Exactly, and I think it leads to the issue, you know, also of sovereignty and how do we want really the European Union and the Euro in particular to be in the next ten or fifteen years? So to me, the message is very simple, right? If you want to be pessimistic, if governments don't want to share risk. They don't want to create a euro bond. They don't want to do a common fiscal policy because they sort of don't trust each other. Then what kind of message are they sending to the private sector when they are telling the private sector, you should trust each other across countries and get into cross-border mergers, right? And I think this is something that, again, governments and politicians need to think about. What kind of message are they sending about the relationship with their neighbors? 
We discussed the latest German paper about yes. banking union, uh, the paper issued by the finance minister, Olaf Scholz, and the um, general appreciation was positive, with the exception that uh, in Italy it's not well received because uh, anything having to changing um, the status quo is not well received in Italy. Italy is extremely has an extreme status quo bias because essentially the, the treasury, treasury has access to the bank. They consider it's um, essential to their safety that their bank can buy their bond. So in the short run, it's absolutely clear it is uh, safer for them. But systemically, it's a, it's a major weakness. Mm-hmm. I, think, I, th- I think it's interesting in the discussion that Italy was both referred to constantly and described as the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For an elephant to be in the room, you're not meant to know, you, it's not something you're meant to talk about. We're, con- we're constantly talking about it. But in a way, I suppose it's central to the Eurozone no, well, because it's also an issue, right? Divergence inside the euro area has increased, right? But, you know, we have to play with the cards that we have. So the starting point today of the discussion is that one. It's one where Italy still has a debt of 130% and Germany has it at 50 or 60, where there are all these divergences. So we need to find a way of working together. Now, for me, one of the things missing in that German paper, which I would agree it takes a more constructive approach, is the fact that without a euro bond or a, or a safe asset or however we want to call it, it's very difficult to convince anybody to reduce risk and to share risk. And again, I go back to the issue of trust. The lack of a proposal for a eurobond tells me that governments still don't trust each other. And so it is not a good place to start the discussion. A safe asset for Italy is a guarantee that there will be bond, Italian bonds somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Okay, so I'm going to finish by asking you what, a question each. So, so Angel, uh, Spain wants to play a larger role in Eurozone policy making. Do you think this is going to happen and what would be the effect? Of course it's going to happen. I'm optimistic about that. And uh, I mean, I want to say one thing. Spain has been making a lot of good and interesting and constructive proposals to the European discussion in the last year. It has been uh, quite actively uh, proposing uh, <clears throat> moving forward with the issue, for example, of the unemployment, uh, of the unemployment insurance facility or, 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 or a scheme. It's, um, it's also making constructive proposals on the issue of a euro area safe asset. And I think there are lots of good ideas coming from there. And, uh, you know, it's been doing it. And once the new government is in place, I think it's going to continue to do it. Optimism. I like it. Oh, realism. Realism. Great. <laughs> Jean, have you given up hope that Berlin and Paris can agree on further integration? For the very short term, yes. Uh, for the, the longer term, not. No, I think they, they, they have to. I mean, you know, <laughs> we've learned it's not sufficient, that there are veto players outside France and Germany. That's what we, we've learned with the Hanseatic League opposition. Um, but it's clear that without an agreement between France and Germany, we, we cannot move anywhere. Uh, so the situation is, is tense now. I mean, the, the outlook uh, on the reforming the euro area is clearly not shared. The, the, the declaration of, of Macron and the economists about the, the 3% rule was seen rightly in Berlin as a provocation. Um, at some point, you know, they need to sit together and, uh, and discuss a realistic agenda that they can share. Uh, so I don't know if it will be with the current uh, German government or it will be after there's a change. I mean, you know, with this particular situation in Germany that everybody is expecting a new leadership uh, to uh, take uh, responsibility and perhaps a different coalition also. But there is no, there is no way out. Great. Thank you both for that uh, fascinating discussion and it was great to build on some of the themes from the session earlier. I will let you return to the final few minutes of your coffee break. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.